Hey gang, welcome back. We're delighted to present today's episode of Ranching Reboot, the podcast that's rebooting your thinking about farming, ranching, and food systems. Ranching Reboot is made possible by Audubon Conservation Ranching and the innovative Audubon Certified Bird-Friendly Seal, a game-changer in connecting consumers to conservation. Alexander Ranch, the birthplace of the Ranching Reboot podcast, is now officially bird-friendly. As a result, our beef products carry the prestigious Audubon Certified Bird-Friendly Seal, indicating they come from lands managed with birds and biodiversity in mind. But why focus on birds like prairie chickens and quail? These avian ambassadors are key indicators of successful regenerative ranching practices that benefit the entire ecosystem. Want to join us and Audubon in this mission? Discover more at audubon.org backslash ranching. In today's episode, we're talking to Will Harris from White Oak Pastures, who shares his fascinating journey from conventional farming to regenerative agriculture. We'll explore the unintended consequences of technology misuse in agriculture, the influence of multinational corporations, and the need for more sustainable practices. So get ready for an insightful conversation that's sure to spark new ideas and challenge your perspective on modern agriculture. Hey, Ranching Reboot fans, are you passionate about regenerative agriculture and want to support our podcast? Join our Patreon community today and get exclusive access to bonus content, merch rewards, and more. Your support will help us continue to bring you fresh stories from new faces in agriculture, as well as the tales of industry veterans who are fighting against what's wrong with our food system. Plus, you'll be joining a community of like-minded fans who love ranching, farming, and regenerative agriculture just as much as you do. Also, be sure to join our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans, discuss current events, and past podcast episodes. Our Discord community is the perfect place to share your thoughts and ideas, get feedback on your ranching projects, and learn from other experts in the field. Don't miss out on this amazing opportunity to connect with fellow ranchers and support our podcast at the same time. Join our Patreon community and Discord server today, and let's reboot your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. Well, Will, I'm in South Central Kansas, and um, yeah, there's there's a lot of pollen here too. So, for for those of you out there in podcast land, um, we're recording this like the last day of March, and we've got eastern red cedars here, Will, and they they all pollinate kind of on the same day all across the plains. It seems like, and you could just see this brown fog coming off of them. There's so much pollen. Um, but I used to live in Virginia Beach, so I. I remember waking up several mornings in a row and like everything outside was just green. The driveway was green. My car was green. <laughs> just yeah, yeah. the pollen off. Yeah. And we have uh Southern yellow pine here. And uh, when, 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 it, when they, when they uh, go, they go. All right. Well, everybody, if you, uh, if you haven't guessed so far, I'm talking with Will Harris today out of Bluffton, Georgia and white Oak pastures. So, well, welcome to Ranching Reboot. That's a it's an absolute honor and a pleasure to have you here, especially after you did somebody like Joe Rogan. Well, Brian, thank you for asking me. I appreciate your interest in what we do. Well, it, and I'm not sure how to get into it because, like, I I mean, I have a pretty I think I have a pretty good understanding of what you do. So maybe you could uh, just start off with some broad broad strokes of of what your operation looks like for maybe the one or two people that might not have heard of you. Yeah. The, uh, the farm today is uh, the main farm here. The home place is 3,200 acres, contiguous. was along Highway 27 in the coastal plain of southwest Georgia. It's about four miles along the road. It's about a mile wide, but it, it 
comes and goes. Uh, uh, we pasture raise five different red meat species on the farm, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits. And we hand butcher them in a USDA inspected slaughter plant I built here on the farm. We pasture raise five poultry species, chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, ducks, and we hand butcher them in a separate USDA inspected processing facility that we built here on the farm. We raise organic vegetables, honey, pasted eggs, and a, and a number of other little bitty ancillary businesses that help us monetize the abundance that, that managing the farm gives us. We uh, we got a <clears throat> we have a, a, a restaurant and an RV park and some cabins that we uh, rent out for agritourism. We got a general store, a restaurant that serves three meals a day, seven days a week. Uh, we founded a, 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 a nonprofit education. I'll tell you about later if it comes up. Just there's, there's a lot of moving parts here. We got 180 employees. We're the largest employer in Clay County, Georgia, which is one of the poorest counties in America. So we're we're very proud of that uh, community contribution. That's awesome. You know, I, what I don't think I've ever heard you speak about is what your operation looked like before before all that. <clears throat> I guess maybe if you could turn back the clock and go back to your last conventional days and tell me what that was like. Yep, that's a good question. So uh, at that time, the farm was uh, about a thousand acres. <clears throat> it, uh, it was all owned land. Uh, today, the uh, 3,200, we own about 2,000, at least about a thousand. Uh, we were... Uh, a monocultural cattle operation, although I did have a, a confinement feedlot and I did raise some of the feed that I fed in the feedlot. <clears throat> we had about 600, maybe 700 mama cows and fed the calves. Uh, you know, it was, it was a very industrial operation. We used a lot of chemical fertilizer, a lot of pesticides, a lot of tillage. We fed a uh, a lot of, uh, I fed chicken manure you know, to, as, as an ingredient to the cow, mixed with corn and molasses. Uh, uh, fully the, the, the feedlot was fully confinement. Uh, the mama cows were on pasture, but it was uh, pretty much continuous grazing kind of a deal. Uh, okay. I had three, probably typically average about three employees at uh, minimum wage kind of deal. Payroll is less than $1,000 a week. Today it's $100,000 a week. About when was that? <clears throat> the, the transition started in the mid 90s. I graduated from the University of Georgia in 1976. And uh, my, my dad had run the farm very industrially before me. So my, my, my great grandfather came here in 1866. He ran the farm, and then his son, my grandfather ran the farm. That was my great granddad, and his son, my granddad, also ran the farm. And you know, I don't know too much about how they ran it, other than just anecdotally what history tells us about how farms were run then. And it would have been with a lot of focus on the the land and the animals and the community, <clears throat> and not much technology. 
My dad was born in 1920, took over the farm post-World War II. And he's the one that I credit with really industrializing, commoditizing the farm. And he was successful with that. Uh, I was born in 1954, graduated from the University of Georgia in 1976 with a degree in animal science from the College of Agriculture. I came home and helped him run the farm very industrially. Uh, and then that, that uh, my dad had uh, dementia, so there was never a clear time when he, he quit running the farm when I started. It was kind of a transition. <clears throat> but by the mid-90s, I was absolutely running the farm before that, really. In the mid-90s, I started transitioning over to this model, and it was, it was not rapid. I mean, it was, it was a true transition. So what, what started to spark the change? What was the genesis of the idea to change? <clears throat> I think that, in retrospect, animal welfare was kind of the canary in the coal mine for me. I just, what I had always been raised to think of as good animal welfare started to not seem like good animal welfare. You know, in the, in the industrial model, if you keep the animals well-fed and watered and in a comfortable temperature range and don't intentionally inflict pain or suffering, that's pretty good. That's, 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 that's pretty good on welfare. That's okay. You, you get all the boxes checked. <clears throat> but it was, it was clear to me that, that we were not giving the animals the opportunity to express instinctive behavior. And that became, uh, it went from not, not being on my radar to being something that I really wanted to, to manage around. And when I started, and again, it was a monoculture of only cattle then. When I started uh, moving the cattle more, not feeding them unnatural feedstuffs, not feeding them subtherapeutic antibiotics, not giving them a lot of hormone implants, honest forms, those kinds of things. <clears throat> I quickly shifted to the land. I mean, it was, it was almost simultaneous, not quite, but almost. And, and realized that what I was doing for the land was as bad as what I was doing to the herd. You know, uh, again, uh, tillage, chemical fertilizers, pesticides, et cetera. So I started moving away from that. And my, my journey has mostly been a series of moving away from things. You know, you look, you know, uh, I think that the, the where we went wrong, we, I mean, we farmers over the last 80 years, is we have embraced uh, more and more te technology and misused it. I'm not, I'm not opposed to technology. You know, I love this uh, iPhone right here, and I'm glad I'm able to talk to you way out there without having to go. You know, I think I, I love technology. I, I had the first drone with anybody in this part of the country as far as, as a farmer goes. Yeah. But the misuse of technology that that literally has broken the cycles of nature and evolved into what I consider to be a very, very damaging food production system. I would I would definitely agree that there's a lot of things about our current food production system, you know, with, with livestock, with crops, pretty much everything you're going to find in a grocery store, the shiny flashy label on it. I, it's just lies built on top of lies built on top of misinformation. 
And I kind of want to go back to something you said that, you know, you have a degree in animal science and your dad was the one that was responsible for, you know, mostly industrializing the farm post-World War II. I mean, that, that also was kind of the era where, you know, we were trying to replace a lot of human labor with machines, you know, with mechanical labor, we're trying to replace natural fertility with chemical fertility. I think it kind of, it, it's one of the unsaid things in agriculture that, those of us in agriculture, we've known for a long time that manure is the best fertilizer, but we go to great lengths to avoid shoveling poop. Like we have, we just keep inventing more and more things to keep the farmer from having to shovel poop. You know, synthetic fertilizer. Hey, we don't have to haul that from the barn anymore out to put it on the field. We can just go buy it in a jug and, you know, scrape that stuff out and not have to worry about hauling it anymore. You know, every big tractor we get just, you know, that much more horsepower can pull that much more tool. One guy can get so many more acres worth today. And, you know, the misuse of technology, I like that quote. So to kind of put a bow on this, it seems like, you know, the more we've pushed these degrees of, quote, crop science or animal science, the more we're getting siloed into these totally unnatural production systems. You know, I think you use the right term there, siloed in. You know, we have uh, we have tried to make a living system, this farm, into a factory. You know, and, and you know, uh, industrial producers just bristle at the term factory farm. And the reason they do is it hurts. I mean, it's too it's too accurate. It's too close to home. And, you know, a factory is a very linear system. Uh, it, it's easy to, to, for a linear system, it's easy to scale it up. It's easy to gain efficiency by scaling up. It's very complicated. A living system is complex, not complicated. And it's not linear, it's cyclical. And it's not easy to scale it up. It's more replicatable. So it's, uh, you know, we took, and the, the, the linear complicated system lends itself to the technology that comes from uh, reduction science. Uh, you know, if if uh, you, can, you can do replicated trials and see what's going to happen. But in a living system, uh, when you change a variable, the system doesn't shut down or not, it morphs. So you wind up with unintended consequences that are usually undesirable consequences and almost always unnoticed consequences. You know, I said my, my dad uh, is the one that started the ball rolling, <coughs> uh, industrializing, centralizing, commoditizing this farm. He, he was, but I'm not putting that off on him. I came home and torqued it up exponentially more than he did. He it, was it was just, the thing to do at the time. It was the, th it was the thing to do at the time. And all that technology that World War II had made available to farmers of his era did exactly what I just said. It, it gave them incredible yield boosts that had uh, undesirable unintended consequences, but you, you, you couldn't see them. I mean, it took decades for them to, to manifest themselves so you could see it. 
and uh, and then it was hard to tie it back to what caused it. If you take a pill today, and it it doesn't it makes you sick a month from now, it's really hard to realize that that cause and effect. Right, because we're we want instant gratification and. I think we as a species have a giant short-term memory problem. Well, I think that we as a species wants to uh, have the hubris that we want to do better than nature. We, we, we want to uh, have a, a system or a crutch or an aid or a boost that is better than nature. And we've been doing that for a century or two or three but nature's been doing what it's been doing forever. And that system has honed itself into perfection. You know, nature, nature's not cruel. Nature's not kind. Nature's perfect. And when we use or misuse technologies to enhance and augment nature, it's going to have an under, you can do it, but there'll be an, unintended, an unintended consequence. And that's what we've done. You know, the, the, the uh, you know, what, what, I, don't, I don't keep up with it much anymore, but what, what can they make? Like 400 bushels of corn to the acre? Or, you know, these record setting corn yields, what, 300, 400? It's, it's... Um, you know, I, I'm not a corn guy either, but I want to say that that the current corn record is like 630 bushels and that's wow. all irrigated. The, the dry yeah. land record, get this, the dry land record is actually uh, a gentleman that I know up in North Carolina that does no-till and cover crops and biologicals. So and he so was like 400 and 420, 430 bushel of the acre on dry land. So, I mean, those numbers are staggering. You know, when I when I'm 68 years old, when I was a kid growing up in the uh, 50s and 60s and even 70s, you know, uh, 200, 200, a little over 200 bushel uh, irrigated corn was just excellent, excellent corn, excellent corn, incredible corn. And but through technologies using uh, you know better fertility, better herbicides, butter insecticides, butter fungicides, butter, 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 butter. We've, we've pushed it to these incredible numbers that you were just citing. And that's, I mean, that's efficiency scaled up. Wow, that's great. Makes cheap corn, cheap feed. But, you know, what what damage did we do in doing that? I mean, all of that all that fertility, mineral fertility that was reductively taken from the ground. And sooner or later, it'll run out on it. I mean, it's just, it's just reductive. The reason they call it reductive is it, it's reduced every right. time you touch it. You know, there's a, you know, there's a, I live uh, 80 miles from the Gulf of Mexico down there. And there are dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico where the rivers flow that uh, you can't wash anymore. You know, big, huge dead zones where the fertility and pesticides have washed down the rivers. You know, there there are many, many species of birds and animals and insects that are have been driven into extinction. <clears throat> There's uh, you know, we, we not, not even get into 
uh, putting carbon up into the into the uh, well, I don't know, you can talk about climate change or whatever you want to, but we put a lot of carbon into the air. We know that. You know, all of these are prices that we have paid for that six hundred bushel corn you talk. Yep. So you know, me, I would suspect we probably shouldn't have ever made six hundred bushel corn. You know, maybe maybe that lower number that nature allowed us to make was what we ought to have been producing. We've not had those damaging unintended consequences. I think 600 bushel corn is bragging rights and a trophy. I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure I remember somebody telling me that that 600 bushel corn did not make money. Like did, didn't make money after he paid the input cost. And you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking about, you're talking about Gulf dead zones and what comes to mind immediately is America's number one agricultural or number one export from agriculture. Got to be careful how you word that number America's number one export from agriculture is topsoil that we just let wash down the creeks and rivers. You know, they carry fertilizer residue, pesticide, herbicide, fungicide residue. And that's what's causing all those dead zones in the Gulf. Now, I remember uh, just after you were on Joe Rogan, uh, something you talked about on there was uh, the runoff off of your farm when it went to the creek and how clear it was versus a neighboring farm that was running off kind of like kind of like chocolate milk. And you know we're we've kind of been visiting about you know these huge yields four six hundred bushel to the acre of corn. You know that that that's great out east. I don't think anybody even kind of close to me has gotten near 300 but the point is so okay great we can raise a lot of bushels of corn that's a lot of tons of biomass per acre but what we're not looking at is the topsoil loss you know a farmer we both make our living off soil soil and the things that grow in it we just happen to use cattle to harvest that you know you've got you know hog sheep chickens goats rabbits turkeys i, I didn't you said it too fast and i couldn't write them all down <laughs> Um, you know, it cycling, cycling that grass upcycling it into human edible protein. And, you know, you showed the video. If there is soil leaving your farm, it's extremely minimal. If there's soil leaving my ranch, it's extremely minimal, but I drive around and, you know, a horrible, horrible drought out here in, in the Western Plains, the wheat pastures are burning up. You know, they're just, they're basically bare dirt. Everybody that's had corn and soybeans last year, of course, that's all been worked and it's all bare and it has moisture infiltration of exactly zero. And when it does rain, you know, those guys are going to lose something like five tons of topsoil per acre. I don't think there's a farmer in the country that would still be in business if he had to buy the soil that washed off his farm every year. Well, I, I agree. <clears throat> the, uh, uh, that video that uh, you referenced is the most compelling thing I have to make people manage their land differently. I mean, it's just it's just crystal clear. It's one of those, my daughter calls out a mic drop moment. I mean, when you when people see that, you don't have to say anything else. That's that's you know, defense rest. Yeah. It's pretty nice to get you know. It'd be pretty nice to get like a one inch rain 
and to be able to go watch the creek and see what the creek does after a one-inch rain. I don't know what to do right now. It'd probably come up and run clear, but uh, normally, you know, a one-inch rain, this ranch will just, will suck a one-inch rain right out of the sky. And a creek won't even come up. Well, I can tell you a little bit about that. Uh, so a, uh, a one-inch rain on an acre of land is a 27,000-gallon water event. That's how much falls in one inch. And that's, that's, that's just arithmetic. I mean, you can, you can calculate that. <clears throat> Beyond that, we all know that organic matter is what makes the soil like a sponge sort of absorb that rainfall. If, it, if it's not, if it's not as like a brick, it's a different brick-like or sponge-like. So uh, if, and this is, this is a softer number, but generally, you know, 1% organic matter will absorb a one-inch rain event at 27,000 gallons on the <clears throat> my, my land uh, used to be a half percent organic matter. That is really farmed down to the quick. I mean, it's a dead mineral medium, but that's what it was. Yep. And that's what my neighbor's farms are. And what that tells us is it will absorb a half-inch rain event. Much more than that, because it depends how quickly it comes and that sort of thing. But it it it's a, a great rule of thumb. <clears throat> Our land is now over five percent organic, which will absorb a five inch rain event. Now, not not if it comes in thirty minutes, but if it comes over a 24, 36, 48 hour period, it's just not going to be much runoff. So. You know, and 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 it's not just organic matter. We, you know, I, I'm I'm a little bit concerned about how much we talk about carbon. I mean, everything you hear is about carbon, carbon sequestration, how to measure carbon in the I, soil. And I think it's I think it's very important. I mean, I think that carbon is, is essential. But you know, there are cycles of nature, and the carbon cycle is one of them. It's as important as any of them, but no more important than the rest of them. And the cycles of nature are, are many, and I, I don't think we even know them all. But for me, it's the, the carbon cycle, the mineral cycle, the microbial cycle, the water cycle, the energy cycle, in, my, in your case, the grazing cycle, community dynamic, on and on, just many cycles that Nature has perfected over all these eons and eons. And we are the first species, we humans, that ever broke those cycles. And we did it with, with technology. You know, we, 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 we became powerful enough to develop tools through reductive science that broke the cycles of nature. And it was, it was, it was a terrible thing. And the fact that we, like that 600 bush are going, the fact we could do it, don't mean we should do it. In fact, we could break the cycles of nature. Don't mean we should break the cycles of nature. But we did. Didn't know any better. Well, that's right. But now we know better. We're still doing it. So I don't know. That gets in that hubris again. That, that human desire to do better than nature. I mean, it's not just farming. I mean, people, look at, look at, uh, <clears throat> professional athletes to take performance enhancing drugs, steroids, or whatnot. It's, I mean, that's the same thing. It's one to one up nature. And you can do 
because you have the right to acknowledge it. But it has an unintended, it has unintended consequences. We, we, could, we could name a bunch of examples of that phenomenon that's outside agriculture. It's, a, it's, it's part of the living systems. That's, that's where that occurs. Let's, let's circle back a little bit and talk about carbon. So I remember it was, what was it? Regenerate 2019 out in Albuquerque, I think it was. Just after, just as that was wrapping up, uh, the Qantas International study that they did on your ranch came out and showed that you're carbon positive. Um, just a week or two ago, I had, I had Paul Brown on, Gabe Brown's son from North Dakota. And great, great guy. Great guy. Yeah, he was, he was a lot of fun to talk to. But we talked about this carbon pipeline that's, that's coming down near their ranch. Now, let, let's preface this. You, you've, you've had a carbon study done on your ranch. Okay. I've had a carbon study. I've had carbon measuring done on my ranch, and I'm actually selling carbon credits through grassroots carbon. Okay. And we can get into that. Like we can peel into that a little bit later if you want. Um, but this carbon pipeline you know, there's, there's, it's kind of hard to find out things about it. You know, like you hear carbon pipeline, you're like, okay, well, they're going to move carbon. Like, how are they going to do that? Well, Paul had, Paul shed a little bit of light. So what they're going to do is they're running this pipeline from North Dakota to Iowa, and they're going to capture CO2 from ethanol plants in Iowa and pipe it to North Dakota and inject it like three or 4,000 feet below the ground. Okay. If you're only worried about carbon and not looking as as not looking at carbon as just one piece of the larger climate puzzle, and if you're just focusing on carbon, will we take carbon out of the? Will we take emissions that would otherwise go into the sky and be able to put them back in the ground? Yes. But what cost? I mean, we're going to build two thousand you know, fifteen hundred miles of pipeline. That's two feet around. We're going to dig that in four feet into the ground, like 1,500 miles. And we're going to use a lot of electricity to pump that and pump it down and store it. And not to mention like all the environmental things that, that come with ethanol. I mean, in order to make ethanol, you need some feedstock to do it, which means more tillage agriculture, probably more chemicals, more seeds, more fertilizers, more land degradation. And then we're going to catch that CO2 and think we're being environmentally responsible by piping it 1,500 miles away and stuffing it 500 feet underground. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The question I keep having is, like, for a guy like you or a guy like me to store carbon on our soil, it's almost a, a, like we're doing it anyway. Why can't we get paid for it? <clears throat> Can you imagine how much money... A lot of people are going to make building, building and operating that pipeline. Yeah, then that, that's the only reason they're doing it is because the government's involved. The prices that they're paying to do that mechanical sequestration blow my mind. Like they're paying $60 to $80 a ton. So I, I think that, uh, <clears throat> and we preface this by saying that I think we talk too much about carbon. Okay. And I think that's because of the cycles of nature. That's the one that's most easily monetizable by big multinational corporations. 
the microbial cycle, energy cycle, water cycle, mineral cycle, carbon cycle. We, <clears throat> the one that's most readily monetizable <clears throat> is uh, pulling carbon out of the air. It's uh, something that can be done through technology. It can be easily measured. The uh, problem with me and you, you and I sequestering carbon is <clears throat> the, uh, the academics argue endlessly about how much we're, we're sequestering. And nobody's going to get it exactly right. And I believe my scientific method is the right one and yours is just stupid. And they argue endlessly. So uh, the place the carbon needs to be is in the soil where it can uh, <clears throat> generally be part of the, the living microbiome. But the part that's easy to measure and that people can make money on is this uh, technological uh, pulling from the, from the atmosphere. <clears throat> so I can pretty much tell you who's going to prevail in that. It's it's not going to be. I mean, if guys like you or me get any of that, get any of the oodles of money floating around, it'll be very small compared to the people that are using a technological solution that are part of a big business that has lobbyists that has a trade organization that owns a couple senators and a couple reps. One of the one of the things that Paul told me about that carbon pipeline in the, up in North Dakota is one of the one of the people who's getting carbon injected under the ground and is going to be getting like going to be getting payments from doing that, going to be taking payments from doing that, is a member of the Public Utilities Commission, which there's only three people on that commission, and they're the ones that are responsible for bringing this carbon pipeline to North Dakota. So it's kind of like there's three people there. There's one guy with a couple of friends that's going to get the lion's share of the benefit in the state. And they're making everybody else deal with this pipeline. <clears throat> well, sadly, that's the way we run our business here. You know, the, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk going on about the farm bill being, being negotiated right now. <clears throat> I've been in DC enough to know how it works. And the farm bill will be written by the lobbyists for big ag, big tech, big food. That's, that's who's going to write the farm bill. And they're going to submit it to the aides from the senators and congressmen. And, and then it'll, and, you know, the, the, the lobbyists will prevail. It'll, it'll be written as they want it. And that's not new. That's been going on for a long time. Ever since there got to be so much money in politics, the lobbyist representing big multinational corporations, mostly mostly publicly traded corporations, write the rules. Or write the right, you know, write the the bill upon them. Yeah, and guys like us, we don't have enough. We can't get together. We can't get enough independent producers together, independent regenerative producers together, and agree on it enough to put in enough money to hire a lobbyist to go to Washington to speak for us. If we did, we don't have enough money. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the big multinational corporations that we could name. You know, and it's the same on, on the, on, we're talking about the farm program because that's what we do. Defense is the same way. 
Uh, pharmaceuticals is the same way. <clears throat> you know, your, your example with the carbon sequestration is the same way. Uh, and I, I, I don't. And the, the, the people who are trying to save the world are very, very, very frustrated by all this. Uh, fortunately, I'm trying to save white oak pastures, and I hope the world gets saved, and I'll do my part to help. But if you have an understanding of how this thing is, is done, you're probably going to not beat your head against that wall much. <clears throat> my contribution towards saving the world <clears throat> is... I mean, it may not be much, but it's doing what I can do. And that is that last year we uh, founded a uh, nonprofit, a 501c3, <clears throat> called Center for Agricultural Resilience. We call it CFAR, C-F-A-R, Center for Agricultural Resilience. And we uh, have a brilliant <clears throat> young woman who's a PhD uh, that runs it, Dr. Carly Redding, and she uh, uh, organizes to host uh, events here on the farm about once a month to teach what we've learned over the past 25 years or 30 years. And, you know, it. we have people come with this. People aren't just flocking in here to, to be part of it. You know, it's a, it's a nonprofit. We don't make money on it. It's a, it's a, uh, we get paid for the people lodging and eating, but we don't. It's not a profit deal. But still, they're not that many. There is not the, the. I thought we'd be having at least once a month, twice a month by now, and we we barely do one a month. So it's you know there's there's a certain amount of lethargy on the part of of, of the people. It's easier, you know, it's pretty easy to sit at home on the couch on your smartphone or on your laptop and complain about injustices in the world, injustices in the food system. But when it really comes right down to it, when most people go buy food, they're going to make a choice based on cost, not based on quality, not based on story, not based on environmental. They're simply making that choice on cost. Cost is, is, is huge. I would say convenience would be about as much. You know, they, uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, we for, uh, you know, there, there weren't, as we talked about big ag, you know, big food developing in the, uh, since World War II, really, really food distribution has developed since World War II. It's way different today than it was then. And we're, three or four generations into the people buying their groceries at the grocery store and you know, they have a restaurant getting it from food service. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with those people. They're not evil people. They're, they're, fine. they're fine people. But there's a codependency between big food, big ag, big tech, and big food distribution. There's a codependency. They all evolved together over the last 80 or so years. And one simply can't make it without the other. I mean, we were, uh, my, my biggest customer was Whole Foods Market. And, uh, and they, we, we're uh, effective uh, December 31st of this, this past year. We no longer sell them. And 
and they, you know, I could I could rag on about, but they're not they're not bad people. They're not evil people. But if you are the meat coordinator, the Whole Foods market, and you got three or four hundred fifty something thousand square foot stores to keep a constant steady supply of meat in. You can't depend on a bunch of white oak pastures to do it. They, they need to be able to pick up the phone and say, send me 48,000 pounds of six ounce fillets uh, every week to the following six warehouses. Thank you. Well, I'm bigger than most regenerative farmers and I'll never see 48,000 pounds of six ounce fillets in one place from here. The only people that can do that are Tyson, Smithfield, JBS, da 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 da. <clears throat> so there's a codependency. If you have a, 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 a meat plant, the codependency is working the other way. If you have a meat plant that, that slaughters 400 head of, of fat cattle per hour, you need Walmart to move that beef. I mean, you can't you, you can't sell it at the farmers market. So there's a codependency; they've got, they've got to have each other, and then that that the form of that codependency exists in consumers. And we're all so accustomed, again, four generations into <clears throat> stopping on the way home at one place and being able to get everything from your toilet paper to your toothpaste. <clears throat> That's just an incredible amount of convenience and it's, it's uh, become a way of life. You know, to, to have to think about sourcing, to, to, to buy food from us. And we sell, we sell online. Uh, we do the oral fulfillment from the farm here. <clears throat> we sell a lot of different stuff. I mean, species for you. But for our customers, and we, we've, got a, we've got a lot of customers. I'm proud of them. I'm grateful to them. They have to plan. They have to, they have to get a, a freezer. And they have to think about uh, what they're going to need over the next week or month. And they have to cook it. You know, they got to, so it, yeah, it's, it's not nearly as convenient. Uh, and I think that convenience is as important as price. You know, pr pr price is an issue. My, my, my beef, pork, lamb costs more than industrial beef, pork, lamb. There's, there's no doubt about it. I think that uh, when we, other, other industries have shown that people will pay a premium for something that's better. You know, they, uh, <clears throat> you're not you're not uh, driving the cheapest vehicle you could possibly drive or dressing in the cheapest clothes you could possibly find or even <clears throat> the cheapest house you could possibly live in. As a society, we've, we've, uh, we like our things. We, 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 we yeah, we've, uh, except it's become acceptable to, to pay more for something that's, that's better. <clears throat> but I don't think we're willing to go to much trouble to get something that's better. Yeah, I, the way 
the way a lot of our food system is, it's not a far stretch to see something better. Uh, while you're, while you were speaking, I wrote down, I had kind of had this thought that the American consumer is in an abusive codependent relationship with the monopolies of the grocery store. <clears throat> a lot of big words. I think I agree with them. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, our, our friend, Mike Calicrate, he, he likes to always talk about monopolies and the power of monopoly and that it's time for another revolution against the power of monopoly. And I hate to say it, the more I listen to the guy, the more I agree with him, the more, the more you see how the monopoly power is. Okay. We've got four big meat packers in beef. How many do we have in pork? Four. What do we have in chicken? Six. I mean, seed companies, there's what three or four of them. Chemical companies, there's three or four of them. Grocery store chains, it's getting to be where there's only three or four grocery store chains. Yeah, they might have all different names on them, but you know, the Food Lion and the the Food Lion and the Kroger are probably owned by the same guys. Well, Mike, you mentioned Mike Calgary. Mike Calgary is a friend of mine. He's one of the most insightful guys I know. I mean, Mike, the things he's talking about today, I figure out in two or three years. You know, so he's I, I, he's a, a guiding star for me. And what he has been talking about for a while now is market access. And when he started talking about market access, uh, I was uh, in every single Whole Foods market from Miami, Florida. My product was in Whole Foods, every Whole Foods from Miami, Florida to Princeton, New Jersey to Cincinnati, Ohio. And he was talking about market access, and I really didn't understand. I didn't disagree with him. I didn't know what he was talking about because I had market access. But as the multinational companies that were codependent upon grocery had gained availability of my kind of products, mostly imported, but gained availability, and they moved towards that dependency and away from me. And then I understood exactly what Mike meant by market access. You weren't big enough. I, I, I was not big enough. I was, uh, you know, just just all the uh, all the you know, those those people have been uh, they grew they they literally grew up together, you know, through the last eighty years, and they. Uh, I don't think we're going to see that change. Not not, not much brings about change other than pain. But you can pretty much depend on pain to bring about change. And I think that if you're in a damaging system, which our food production system is, eventually there'll be pain. Now I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure of all that. What I'm not smart enough to figure out is how that how that's going to look. You know, how, how's that going to happen? How's that going to go down? And I I don't I don't know that. And I'm interested in what other people think, but I don't think anybody else knows either. I I don't have a clear idea. I just, I feel like, I feel like they're just trying to let us have a soft crash. And when I say they like, okay, we're not going to like get into who they is, but like society general, like just the direction that we're going. I feel like the people in power want to continue to be in power as long as they possibly can. Like nobody gets the government and gets wealthy and powerful and is there for 10 years. And is just like, you know what? I'm just going to quit and I'm going to go home and retire. 
Nobody does that. They get there, they enjoy the power, they enjoy the access, they enjoy the influence, and they want to stay. And we get career politicians that, you know, they form these relationships. Just like all the, you know, a lot of the retailers, they all went to school. They all know each other. All the politicians, these people, these people have known each other since college. They've been making deals with each other since college. It's a club that we're not in. And, you know, if you want to get into it, that's great. I might like to hear a little bit more about Whole Foods and the Gap program and how that's kind of a bait and switch to some extent. Um, no, I'll, be, I'll be glad to hear about that, but I want to comment on what you just said. I actually think it's, I think it's a little more insidious than that. I, I don't think that uh, the relationship between big government and and multinational corporations uh, is because of uh, old college relationships or anything like that or working together for a long time. <clears throat> I think that they, they, they talk about the revolving door. I think that uh, uh, a long time ago, Big multinational corporations figured out that if they would give senior bureaucrats, not, not so much politicians, but the senior bureaucrats, the people that are way up the pipeline in FDA, EPA, Defense Department, USDA, if they will uh, give those senior people a really good job at retirement, then that those people would come to spend the last 10 years of their career serving them. You know, I, I looked up the, uh, the pay scale for some, some people that way up in, in USDA, and you've got to be pretty high up the food chain to make $90,000 or $100,000 a year, which, which is a lot of money, but you got to be way on up the pipeline. you got to have been there a long time, <clears throat> become very senior and very powerful. And if you are a big multinational food company, defense company, pharmaceutical company, whatever, food company, and you give some of those 50-something-year-old senior bureaucrats a job making two or $300,000 a year at retirement, everybody that works under them says, wow. Did you see what happened with Joe? He sucked up to those guys for the last 10 years of his career, and they gave him a job that was way better than anything he had ever had. I think I know how I'm going to spend the next 10 years of my career. And I think that's become part of a culture. You know, can I give you specific examples? Well, I, I might can. I can't prove it, but I can I can. I can lift up some situations where it sure looks like that's what happened. But I can't prove it, so I'm not saying it. I, I think we all, I think, I mean, I, I would agree. I would 100% agree with you. There's a revolving door. You know, it's it exists with the banking industry and the Securities Exchange Commission. It exists with, with Big Pharma and the FDA. It exists with Big Ag and the USDA. There is, I, I think Mike was telling me about, about something like this that had happened that, you know, somebody left the U S like had made a ruling for one of the big meat packers or made a rule that kind of favored them. And then six months later, he walks out and he's working for, for that company for a quarter million dollars a year as a quote consultant. That's exactly what I, I know this. I, I, I know this. Yeah. 
the name escapes. I don't, I don't think it's isolated, is my point. No, I, it happens in defense. You know, how many how many old generals and admirals do you see walk out of the Pentagon and go to, you know, McDonnell Douglas or Boeing or Raytheon and get six figures a year for doing not a whole lot? It's and I, I don't know I don't know if there's a way I don't know how we roll that back. I don't know how how to fix that, how to change that. I think it's just that's just part of the system that we're in and it's gonna be a contributor to the eventual collapse. And that's why I said I'm a, I'm a happy man. I'm a very, very happy man. Because I'm not trying to change the world. I'm trying to change white oak pastures. If I were trying to change the world, I would not be a very happy man. Because I, don't, I, I can't do it. It would be a very frustrating way of living my life. I, I would venture to say that you not only have, have made a big positive impact on white oak pastures, but also Bluffton, Georgia, and what did you say, Clay County? Yes. Oh, I, I, I think your impact stretches a little bit beyond your fence line, my friend. Well, I hope so, but that's not, that's not what I live for. You know, I, I live for, you know, the hundred eighty people that, that work here. I hope, I hope this benefit other places. We are, matter of fact, uh, <clears throat> We sold the book rights to White Oak Pastures to uh, the big publishing company who's uh, Random House Penguin Viking. And uh, they hired a, a talented young woman to write the book about White Oak Pastures. And she did. And she just finished it. I just got my, my electronic copy, copy to read. It's called a bold return to giving a damn. And a bold return to giving a damn. Bold return to giving a damn. And uh, you know, I hope, uh, hope, it, I hope, I hope it. You know, shit. No, nobody might make, read it but me and my wife. You know, and, but you know, I hope somebody else reads it, and I hope it helps. It's not going to change the world, but I hope it makes some tiny little contribution. I'll read it. When's it coming out? Uh, either August, either September or October. Okay, this fall. Well, I'll have to get a copy and read it before conference season in case I run into you again. Yeah. Well, I I, I try not to go to them anymore than I have to anymore. Uh, I, I think they're great, but after after a point, you pretty much met all the people and heard all the messages. I mean, there's a point there. I still like to go to a lot of them. I, I'm going to try to get to one or two every year just, just to get off the ranch for a little while and go see some friends and do a little bit of networking. You know, I, I get that. But I love what I do so much. I just I don't want to leave. The, the older I get and the more I get this place the way I want it, the stronger my sense of place becomes. And I mean, I'm still in good shape. I can travel. I can do anything. I, I can do anything I want to do. I'm not, I'm not not going as much because I'm 68 years old. I'm not going because I don't want to miss anything here. You know, I just, I'm, 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 I'm just, I mean, it's not that something bad will happen and they won't know what to do. That, that, that part's better than this other being. We got a, 
we worked hard on secession. We got a great staff here. I just literally don't want to miss anything. And something's happening here every hour of every day. I mean, it's, it's I just don't want to miss it. I can respect that. We get a little more going on than just, you know, me with my grass and cows. So let's, if we can, let's kind of cruise back to the mid nineties. And when you're, you know, when you're taking over the farm and when you're starting to transition, like, I'm, I'm still curious on that, how you went from three minimum wage employees to over a hundred. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I can explain that to you. And, and I hope in my explanation of it, it might help some people that are kind of making this transition now. So here's, 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 here's that deal. So if you are a novice farmer, or if you are a experienced industrial farmer, and you want to start a local, regenerative, humane production system, <clears throat> you probably believe that what you got to do is just learn how to produce the in the pasture or the fields. You got, you got to learn how to uh, start the cycles of nature or restart the cycles of nature and get them uh, a, a grow a product and then without using all misusing the technology. Now that's 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 kind of where you start. <clears throat> and so you you start about the business of figuring that out. You do that by visiting other farms, maybe interning on other farms, maybe hiring a consultant whatever you got to do to get that figured out. And then you think that when you get that figured out, you'll pretty much be where you need to be. It's like being at the bottom of a hill and looking up and all you can see is that hill. You don't know there's another hill to get to the top of that. So you spend the next few years, whatever it takes you, figuring out how to be a regenerative, local, humane, producer <clears throat> and then you, you produce a product and then you realize that uh, you got to monetize that product in a way that that gets the extracts the value out of it you put in it you can't just haul it to the stockyard or haul it to the grain elevator you go broke so and, and consumers don't buy hogs and cows and sheep they buy beef and pork and lamb so you got to figure out that processing component. That's the next hill you got in front of you. And you think if you get to the top of that hill, you're pretty much going to be okay. <laughs> so you climb that hill and figure out how to make your product monetizable. And you got to. So you climb a hill and you get it figured out. So and you think that that ought to be okay because you got production down, you got the processing down. Maybe you don't do it yourself, you get somebody else to do it, whatever, but you got to figure it out. And then you find out there's another hill. And that hill is market access. Because probably people aren't going to consume what you produce where you produce it. 
you know, we produce it in places like Georgia and Alabama and Kansas and Missouri and Arkansas, Nebraska. And they consume it on those in those zip codes with the high disposable income. So that market access is, is hard. So that's your, that's your next hill. I, I may sit through all that because you asked the question, how do we go from three minimum wage employees to 180 employees and make $100,000 a week? And the answer is, every time you climb one of those hills, you, uh, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking here? In, in source, something that previously was outsourced. That's not exactly the right word. I mean, you internalize things that had previously been externalized. That's the word I'm looking for. Okay. So all that internalization of, of, of services and functionalities and tasks and jobs uh, is, is how we went from three to 180. Uh, you know, Mark, uh, uh, 25 years ago, my uh, my office was a kitchen table, and uh, now we you know, we just built an administration building. It's not very big. It's not it's not fancy. It's a, it's a metal building. But if you ask me, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, if I thought we'd ever have an office building, I said we ain't even got an office. <laughs> I think most guys would say their office is the cab of their pickup or a legal pad. Yep. So it sounds like, you know, you, you didn't talk about like adding, adding a bunch of species, but I can definitely, you know, I, I followed that like, okay, I've got cows. How do I get cows to market? Well, I need to build a slaughter plant. Well, now I need to build a grocery store. Now I need to build a shipping facility. Now I need to do all the value adds. Oh, we've got customers asking for hogs. We've got customers asking for sheep. Have to add those too. It's is that kind of how it went? It is. It is. The other species was what you said, plus the fact that we needed the other species. You know, every animal has an impact. It's different. Every species has an impact. It's different from the other species. And we gave up using. Uh, Herbicide, for instance, herbicide on pasture. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there. The cows really didn't want to eat. And having sheep and goats was very handy. I gave up tillage and, and hogs. Had a, uh, their impact is handy. I gave up buying nitrogen fertilizer and having poultry is, uh, has an impact is handy. So, you know, since that gets part of that monoculture versus uh, uh, system, but yeah, having having those species also helps with marketing. We we sell more beef because we can offer lamb and turkey and pork and whatever. So you meant you know we 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 keep dancing around Whole Foods and we're just we're just going to kind of go around it again. Um, Let's talk about shipping, because obviously, you know, with, with that many cattle and that many different species in a small, poor county, there's not enough, you know, not enough consumers, you know, the market access, population density, you know, distance to people, whatever you want to call it. 
uh, it's an issue for me. So where I am within a two hour drive, I could barely cover a half a million people within a two hour drive. So my access to market, it's going to saturate pretty quickly with other people doing what I'm doing. So how do you develop nationwide shipping channels that are cost effective? Well, first of all, you don't want to develop nationwide shipping channels. That is not what you want to do. You want to be as local as you possibly can. Now, I'm, I'm, I, I, like you, uh, my local market is not a good market for me. Uh, we, uh, again, Clay County, Georgia is one of the poorest counties in the United States of America. And good people, I love them, and the friends and neighbors and relatives, but they're not, they're not my customers for the most part. So we got to, and I, I spent seven, seven, seven and a half million dollars building processing facilities. So I got to sell a lot of stuff. You know, we, we, we got to sell 20, 25 million dollars worth of stuff a year to make it all work. And I can't sell it in Clay County, Georgia. So I have to reach way out. Now, the further out I reach, the less well I do. So I want to become as local as I possibly can. Uh, we, we, uh, the fact is, right now, you can order our product from, uh, and we ship to 48 states, but we don't want to. You know, we, uh, and I shouldn't have to. You know, uh, at, I'm, I'm getting very sparse. sparse. I, where I'm sitting right now, is uh, an hour, it's a, a 50, 45, 50 miles to a Walmart or to a mall or to a movie theater or to a hospital that's more than a mass unit. So I'm, I'm very rural too. But uh, Atlanta is, is three hours up that road and there's several, several, several million people in Atlanta. And Florida, is about 60 miles down that road. And everybody that doesn't live in Atlanta lives in Florida. So they're, you know, I mean, that's where I want to sell my stuff. You know, I, I, want, I don't want to sell stuff in, uh, in California because I won't carry Richards to sell it. And I don't want to sell stuff in Indiana because I want Greg Gunthorpe to sell it. And I don't want to sell stuff in North Dakota, because I want Paul Brown to sell it. So I got to right now. But my uh, my dog hounds marketing here, thank God. And you know, her quest is to sell uh, $25 million worth of product, but it's to sell it as close to Bluffton, Georgia as she can. But with the full understanding, it's not going to be in a 100-mile in a radius. It's going to be in a 200 or 300-mile radius. Yeah, and I think it it's definitely more of a challenge for those of us in the plains, in the plain states, to get market access just because of population density and distance distance to markets. And like you said, you know, I Mike's a good friend. I don't want to go to Colorado Springs and compete with Mike. I don't want to go to Northwest Kansas and compete with Mike. I'd love to keep everything in the county and never have to, you know, see anything get put on a UPS or a FedEx truck. But the reality is, I think, you know, in order to build customer base, 
we we you know are going to have to ship and i'm kind of curious as to why you say the farther away you have to ship the worse you do is that because of loss returns or just cost of shipping oh yeah, well, the lack of dependability of FedEx and UPS, the further you go, the, the more risk you take. And, you know, we make product good if it doesn't get there on time. Uh, how much dry ice you got to put, how much uh, how much they charge you to, to, you know, and the fact that I'm cognizant that I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the guy that's keeping Paul Brown from doing well in Bismarck, North Dakota. I want Paul Brown to do well. Yeah, and it's also hard, like from from a sustainability or regenerative standpoint, to say, yeah, I'm a regenerative ranch, and you know we're low emissions, this, and we catch carbon, soil organic matter, that. But then you're going to put a six pound box of beef on a truck and send it halfway across the country. And there's that. You know. that it's 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 something we have to work on as an industry as a group and i don't think anybody's going to come up with an individual solution well it, it you know, that 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 side of market access is 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 the uh, that's the hill we're climbing right now so do we want to is this a good chance to talk about whole foods and market access yeah i'm happy to i'd also like to hear about about the gap program how that's kind of a, bait and switch well we'll start with it <clears throat> so i really don't I, I really would not make the statement that it was originated as a bait and switch i didn't think so when when gap was proposed i thought it was a hell of a good idea i mean i thought it was great and uh and i, I went to the first gap produce a meeting they had and uh, and I think I was the fir- I believe I was the first certainly one of the, one of the first farms that was audited for GAP. And uh, and they at the presentation they said okay here's the deal we got these uh, animal welfare standards one through five. And uh, five is really really good animal welfare. That's really about as good as we can figure out how to do it. One is is entry level. It's low hanging fruit. It gives producers who are have not focused on animal welfare a chance to put their toe in the water. Yeah, but but the expectation is that they'll move from one to two to three, and be on the continuum. That they would not languish in that very low level of uh, of uh, uh, low hanging fruit. And I thought that was just a great idea. I, mean, I can remember thinking, yes, that's good. That's really good. And I actually went to uh, school to the to learn how to be an auditor. I never did it for money, but I went to, to, to learn how. I was that into the program. Uh, I was uh, one of the few that ever made step five plus on uh, uh, my reach that level, but I did. And, uh, and and I thought it was just great. I thought it would prevent greenwashing. But what happened is it became a greenwashing tool because I, I challenge you, if you go into Whole Foods right now and say, show me all you got four and five stuff, they won't have much to show you. If you say, show me your step one and two, they'll have a lot. 
And so it, it went from big signs, one, two, three, four, five, five plus, to, hey, it's gap rated. It's all great. And, you know, there have been facilities put in by big uh, multinational meat companies to raise step one chicken or step two chicken. And there's no intention of moving up the continuum because there's uh, it's too ex it's, it's too expensive to pay the premiums to get the higher step. So, what was what was what would be the difference in premium from a gap one product to a gap five gap five plus? That's 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 kind of like how long is a strain? But it's like, I don't know if I can answer that, but it's not much. I mean, they, they, they would not pay you much more for uh, step five and step one. So it, it seems like there was, seems like maybe there is a problem with lack of incentive to keep moving up the ladder and lack of consequence for not. That, that, that's true. And, uh, and some of it probably falls on the back of the <clears throat> consumer. Uh, Whole Foods might tell you that they, they just weren't willing to pay much more. I, mean, I, I don't know that. I don't have that information, but that might be that might be what they would say. I can tell you this: it uh, it also manifested itself in being difficult for them to to merchandise. You know, if you if you run a Whole Foods store meat counter, I mean, you, you need to have a step one choice real by steak because that's what people, you know, a lot of people are super focused on animal welfare. They don't want the cheapest good real steak they can buy. So you get step one. Well, <clears throat> they can't have a step one, a step two, a step three, a step four, a step five. You know, that, that's just, that ties up too much of that valuable real estate that is the cap the showcase. Right. You got five real by steaks, you got five times as much shrinkage, spoilage, and you're probably not going to sell any more steaks. You, you know, so from probably a, sell less. From an efficiency perspective, uh, you just got to, you know, it's, it's just really, you just need to have one. And if you're the only one you got is step five, and step five is way more expensive, then you're going to lose a lot of sales. People that just wanted a, a, a cheaper, good real by state. So it, I think it was, uh, while I thought it was a great idea in the moment, uh, I was wrong. It wasn't too good idea. It, 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 it was born dead. Did the customer just not understand it? And by that, I mean, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying this is like, to pick on anybody, but generally as a group of consumers, we're kind of dumb and we're kind of set, we're kind of susceptible to manipulation. Was the gap program and, you know, the different level, the five levels of certification for gap, was it just too complex for the customer to understand? Uh, I, I don't, I, I can't answer that. It may, may, may be, uh, certainly, certainly too complex for, for many customers to understand not too complex for everybody to understand. Here, here's what you got to remember. Those guys running those meat counters for, for Whole Foods Market are not bad people. I mean, they're professional people with 
families and careers and you know they're they're, they're good folks. You know, I like like most people. They're good people, but they're charged with making money. You know, you know Whole Foods is a stock company. Whole those, those guys at the executive level and the manager level at Whole Foods are charged with maximizing the return to their shareholders. Their job, it does not say move animal welfare forward at all costs. That ain't what it says. It says maximize the return to our shareholders. That's, that's, that's not even a choice they have. That's just part of, of, of being a, um, in management for a publicly traded company. Well, if they don't do it, they can get fired. They will get fired. Shareholders will fire. And if, and if they don't do it, people sell the stock, and the company will go out. And the company might have to sell to Amazon. Oh, wait, wait! I think that's what happened. <laughs> so it, I mean, it's, you know, follow the money, and, and I, I, I'm not being critical of that. Uh, I think that uh, I did get I did get upset uh, with them uh, in the way they used it overtly for greenwashing. And uh, they, the Whole Foods did a little promotional video that uh, we have a we have a copy of. They pulled it down. You, you know, they they put it up. It was up for a while. In order for they realized that I, I guess they realized that wasn't good advertisement. They pulled it down. But we got a copy before they took it down. Screenshot or whatever you call it. You know, I, 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 you know we, we we didn't we didn't go through corporate espionage. We just you know, we just my daughter just got it. Right, but it's it's uh, it's a classic. So this is a picture of the uh, the video is just Whole Foods meat market manager standing behind the counter with his hands up there like they like they do, and a customer walked up and he was interacting with him, and the the guy the customer said, "So what's this five step rating business?" And the Whole Foods guy, and I'm sure it was a professional actor in the. Uh, uh, clip said, well, step one is like, pow. and step five is like, pow. Well, shit. And what he's saying is, it's all good. And he had to say it's all good, because he didn't have nothing but step one. If, if, if he had said, if he had told the whole story in a meaningful way, and the customer said, oh, wow, I wouldn't need that. I, I don't want that step one. Give me a step five. He didn't have one. So it became a greenwashing tool. It became something that would help move high animal welfare products to something that would help move lower welfare product at the expense of the sale of a high, higher welfare product. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a term for that. It's called, because we call it greenwashing, but it's called the halo effect. There's even a term for it, and and, it, and they and Whole Foods. I think that most people would agree that if they have exposure, they're better at it than anybody on the planet. I mean, that's that that was the business model. It's pretty easy to sell somebody what what you think they want. No, well, okay, that thought didn't go anywhere. <laughs> I, 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 you, I, I'll I'll finish it for you. I can't remember who it was, but one of the CEOs, founders of one of the big meat companies, has famously said, uh, sell them what they want and deliver what you got. 
Okay. Okay. That's not a good moral lesson, but it, it, it sure built a big old meat company. I don't think you'll find very many good moral lessons among the meat companies today. <laughs> <laughs> or in the era of Sinclair Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of, of, of meat packing and value adds, um, I, I understand you added a leather tannery recently. Do I have that right? Did I did what? A leather tannery. No, 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 no. We, we, uh, I have, I'm, me and my employees have screwed up more hides trying to tell them that you can shake a stick at. Okay. But we do have a leather shop. So we, we use all of our hides. We kill about 120 cows a week. This number varies, but about 120 cows a week, 40 sheep, 50 hogs. That's on the red meat side. Uh, <clears throat> and we use all the hides. And uh, some of the hides we send to a, well, some of the hides we send to a kind of a, I'm not real proud of it, chrome tannery that I don't think is very, probably very good environmentally, but they, they make hair on hides and people want them for drugs. So we send some there. I we sent some to a really upscale tannery that's uh, uh, vegetable tanned. And we have a, a leather shop that makes purses and wallets and belts and dog collars and whatever's whatever's pretty out of leather. They do a real good job. And then we uh, the rest of them we make rawhide uh, pet treats out of. So we we're very proud of that. We use everything that comes out of our slaughter plants. Uh, hides, uh, organs. We used to, uh, we, used, we used to, I'm, I'm, I hate this, but uh, we used to throw away a lot of good organs like livers and hearts. We just didn't have enough market for them. We'd, uh, we'd, we'd uh, throw them away, compost them, whatever. Why did the American <laughs> and, uh, public quit eating liver? Today we sell all the those organs, heart, liver, pancreas, whatever. We sell all that, and they, they sell out. Testicles. I think, I think the most expensive meat we sell per ounce is testicles. I think that's right. Uh, this all, all the organs sell. The other parts that we used to throw away, like tracheas, penises, esophaguses, noses, tails. We make pet chew, dehydrated pet chews, uh, pet treats, we call those. Uh, the, uh, our plants generate about nine tons a day of what USDA calls packing plant waste. That's the feathers, eviscerate, gut fill, the bones that aren't marketable as soup bones, all these the heads, whatever. And uh, we uh, uh, compost that and put it back on the land. When I say nine tons a day, that sounds like a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. But, but it's it's so much moisture. I mean, it's it, you know, it's actual dry matter. I don't know what it is, but you know, probably probably seven to eighty percent moisture. So that when you get the dry model basis, it's not nearly that much. But we compost it and spread it back on our land. 
Well, I mean, nine tons of waste. I mean, you're running 120 cows, 40 sheep, and 50 hogs just on the red meat side every week, not counting what comes out of the poultry plant. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I could definitely see nine tons. Like you said that, and I'm thinking, holy crap. Yeah, that's a reasonable volume. Holy crap, that's a lot. To, that's a lot to deal with. If you can't see it coming out here, I'll show it to you. Oh, wow. So, how how challenging was it to find? You know, you, you talked about the uh, leather chrome tannery. It's it's not a great process, and yeah, I don't know a whole lot about leather tanning. To be honest with you, I know that the leather industry like a lot of the leather tanneries in the U S have closed that now almost all that work has gone, you know, to China or to Southeast Asia. Like you go out to Dodge city or garden city when they, when they peel them, they throw that hide in a 40 foot container that goes to the West coast and gets on a ship and goes to China. Why is that? I think it's because it's the same reason that a lot of other quote dirty manufacturing got outsourced it's because the company that was doing it it was too expensive to comply with the environmental regulations here or too expensive to pay the labor here so they moved somewhere with easier environmental regulations and cheaper labor yeah i think it's, it's i think it's, i'm you know, i'm one of those businesses i think it's pretty environmentally nasty uh, i uh, to, to be honest, I've never been to the chrome tanning plant that we use, but some of my people have. But I've never been to the vegetable tanning plant that we use, but some of my people have. But the, the feedback from the ones that went to the vegetable plant is just a lovely place. It was just, it's nice. It's the kind of thing that you would, <clears throat> we, you know, we briefly considered a, a plant of some sort. And the vegetable tanning plant is something that I, I, I believe we would not mind having on our farm. I just, you know, I just don't have the capital to do all these things that I would like to do. That, that's interesting. I, I've always heard that that tanning and leather making is a pretty, like, at least, quote, modern is a nasty, stinky process with some pretty ugly chemicals. But, you know, there, there's a vegetable process. And I know that there's also the, you know, ancestral brain tanning process that's probably pretty similar to the to the vegetable tan um yeah we try a lot of that this is just a skill set i mean we you know we you don't, you don't just figure that out from a youtube video and i imagine that's one thing that you know like you said you probably have to screw up a few before you get one right we screwed up a few and didn't get one right <laughs> i screw up a lot of stuff and i don't get much right I know exactly how that feels. So how, how would somebody start to replicate the white oak pastures model somewhere else? <clears throat> well, I would guard against trying to replicate any model. I think that because every ecosystem is so different and every economy you sell into is so different that to have a guiding light that you're going to emulate would be a, a hell of a mistake. I don't, I don't see anybody do that. I, I, tell, I tell people don't do that. Uh, I do think that, uh, but, but if you want to create your own food system that fits your economy and your ecosystem, 
is what you ought to be focused on. And I think to do that, you probably should go and intern uh, at a place that has been doing it successfully that you think might be kind of what you like and probably more than one place. We've got an intern program that is is really, uh, we get a lot more applications than we have, than we have slots for it. So popular, I guess is the word. And, and we, we bring these interns here. We take six at six per cohort, four times a year, so 24 per year. And that's all we can handle. I mean, if we get more than that, then it becomes unmanageable for us. We, we're not an academic uh, organization. This is a farm. And um, we uh, we take those 24 per year, six, six at a time, four times. And <clears throat> we, because we do get more applications than we got slots, we're able to pick and choose and get some really great people here. We make job offers to about half of them, and about half of those accept it. So we, we it's a it's a great employee stream for us. And then of course a lot of them have really focused on having their own operation. They leave here and go to another place, you know, to to intern, which I I recommend. I mean I think I think I think the more vast your experience, the more likely your success. I would, I'd agree with that, that, you know, the more successful people in this business are the ones that get out more, that see more, that, you know, go visit other ranches, go visit other farms, see how it's done, see how other people do stuff and talk and talk about it. The people that aren't necessarily don't seem like they're doing as well. Um, you don't see those guys at conferences a whole lot see them at the coffee shop complaining about complaining about you know market price which you know that that's something that i think we all need to try to get away from is just being a price taker and taking the price that you're given whether it's at the grain elevator the co-op or at the sale barn and I, i really love what you guys have done down there in georgia and are being price makers on so many different products and making such a big impact in that community so other than interning other than interning on another farmer ranch, what would be your best advice for somebody wanting wanting to start down this path of growing their own food and, and growing food for a community? Well, the same old adage uh, applies. Uh, it takes a lot more money and a lot more time than you, think, you thought it was going to take. Uh, I should tell you that... Uh, in, in, in the interest of uh, Candle, that this my business is not very profitable right now. You know, we've been doing it a long time. We've figured some stuff out. We've had some good years. We, we made some money. But right now, our business is less profitable than it's been in a long time. Our return on investment is horrible. And it's because of market access, greenwashing, in our case, and this this is a problem. In our case, we got way more fans than we have customers. And I'm I haven't been saying that much. That's my that's kind of what I'm gonna start telling people because it's so true. I can't remember those numbers, but Instagram we got we got way over 
100,000 followers or, or whatever, wherever you do this around. <clears throat> and and those are people that, for the most part, I guess, support our program or, or look favorably upon our program. But we struggle to, to sell our product uh, without resorting to wholesale. And I guess I told you earlier, when you resort to wholesale, probably not going to do very well. So, you know, I, I wish I, I don't wish I had, I don't wish I had less supporters, but I wish that our supporters were more customers, would become more customers. And that, and I say that, I'm going to be clear, that's not just white oak pastures. And that, that, that is my experience. I stand by it. I mean it. But that's going to be true with, with regenerative farms all over the country. Uh, Stemple Creek Farms, Ranch in California, to I don't care where you are, are, all of us have a lot of supporters. Supporters are great. We need customers. So that, you know, that, that, if there's a message, that's the message. Is, uh, <clears throat> if, if you, your Wendell Bears are a role model of mine from a farmer writer from Kentucky, he wrote The Unsettling of America. He said something to the effect, I, I'll, butcher, I'll butcher this quote, but something to the effect that uh, consumers vote for how they want the world to be with their food dollar, or vote with their food dollar how they want the world to be. And I think we got a lot of people, good people, well-meaning people that that read what we write and listen to what they, we say, and they say, hell yeah. And then they, they stop by the uh, Walmart or Costco and pick up some Smithfield or Tyson JBS meat and grill it. And there's a disconnect there. Yeah. Hell, hell of a disconnect. Yeah, and part of me, you know, you can't help but wonder why. You know, how do we turn our fans into customers? How do we turn our cheerleaders into customers? How do we get those people to actually open their wallets and give us money instead of keep instead of giving it to JBS, Smithfield, Tyson, Cargill, Marfrig, um, Producers Pride, you know, whatever. How do we get that? And it's, you know, I, think, it, I think you do what I just do. You say it out loud. Let them make up their mind what they're going to do. And I think that these people aren't, don't feel like they're hypocrites, you know, su support regenerative ag, but, but uh, buy from industrial ag. I don't think they, they feel that uh, hypocrisy or that disconnect. I think that they just uh, they support us because they appreciate the message and it resonates with them. And then they buy from multinational corporations because you go right by it on the way to work. It's there. It's cheap. It's easy. It's consistent. You know, there's the and, there, and there's a feeling, I think, among uh, among people that if it's in Costco or Walmart, it's fine. It's fine. It wouldn't be in there if it wasn't fine. You know, my my mother's generation believed that whatever the doctor said is what you damn well need to do. If he told you to take that handful of pills three times a day, that's what you did. 
and, and because that was the mindset and it was, it was, it was wrong, but that's what, that was what she was conditioned to believe that generation was conditioned to believe today. There's a little bit more uh, questioning among enlightened people. And I think that uh, even among the uh, people of my daughter's generation, certainly my old wife, probably my daughters even, that it would not be in that Costco if it wasn't fine. There's nothing wrong with anything in Costco. Those people wouldn't have it there. And that's not true. Those people are not bidding your problems. You can buy Little Debbie by the pallet at Costco. So that, like, that argument is moot. So that's uh, that's part of that disconnect. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering how it got that bad. It's just people don't want to know how the sausage is made. Well, I mean, you got <clears throat> you got brilliant people that make incredible amounts of money messaging the desired message to the consumer. I mean, there's a lot of money in it. And, you know, if you take a, a, a very smart person who spent their career figuring out how to deliver a message in a manner that has impact with the, with the consumer they're trying to reach, and they do it for, it's been going on. How long have we been talking about Madison Avenue advertising? I don't, I don't even know what that is, but you know, that Madison Avenue has been a advertising center in New York for, you know. Forever? Years. Yeah, forever. Well, I mean, it, it wasn't in 1866 when my granddad started this place, but it's certainly uh, post-World War II it became a thing. And that's, you know, I mean, you, you can get very advanced degrees in advertising and marketing and, and you know, you get good at it. And you make a lot of money doing it. And, and that you know, manifestation of that is uh, smart people thinking that anything that's made by you know, PepsiCo, Unilever, it's fine. Anything that's sold in Walmart and Costco, it's fine. And it may not be fine, but... We've been you know, tricked... Look at, look, at, look, at, look at what flash look at, labels. Look at what Big Tobacco did with uh, with cigarettes. You know, Big, Big Tobacco. I'm old enough to remember that uh, in the '60s, uh, Big Tobacco already knew that cigarettes were not good, but they were still uh, having uh, printing advertisements say more doctors smoke Winston than any other cigarette. Uh, they knew. Uh, they knew nicotine was not good, but they found ways to make cigarettes more addictive than they would have been naturally. And I really believe that big food, big tobacco, big tech, big uh, big ag is where big tobacco was in the 60s. Now, I'm not sure it'll come to the same end. Uh, when tobacco, big tobacco got uh, um, called out Surgeon General and all that was before the day of there being so much money in politics. I'm not saying there was not money in politics in the 60s and 70s, but there's less than it is in 2023. Yeah. So if, uh, if you're a big ag, big food, big tech, and you got all that money, you got all those lobbyists controlling all those politicians, I don't know how that ends. 
previously it was ended because the Surgeon General and those people that were responsible for the health of the country say it called it out. I don't know if that's going to happen this time or not. I don't know that. I I mean, I, I definitely see the problem with, you know, how, you know, we've kind of been talking about it that the government is now more of an oligarchy that it's, you know, nepotism. It's, you know, Hey, you're my friend. You did this for me while you're in the government. We'll give you this sweet job. It, it's still the same thing. It's, we can't have reform. Like the, these, the people aren't going to vote against, they're not going to make policies that are going to harm their shareholdings. And I think that's a lot of the problem is, you know, we have congressmen and senators that hold investments in defense firms, in big ag firms, biotech firms, you know, whatever. You know, why do we have, why are, why are most of the people in the Senate ag committee invested in big meat packers, uh, pharmaceuticals and seed companies? Why are they on the ag committee? If they're, if they have those investments, you know, th- that doesn't make sense to me. So getting reform without what, since there's so much money in politics, I don't think that this is a system that can, that this is a thing that can be fixed with reform. Like, I, I think it's got to the point where there's so much money in politics and it's just, it's such a deep systemic infection that the only way to really fix it is to tear it down and, and start over with a new system. Well, and that gets back into what I said earlier about you fellows trying to fix, fix the world, save the world. I'm for you. <laughs> I'm going to work on white pastures. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, um, kind of need to start moving out of here. Did we? Did I forget to ask anything this morning? I think you did a real good job. Good job. All right. I think uh, whiteoakpastures.com, probably ever find everything from there. Yep. Whiteoakpastures.com. You know, Facebook is White Oak Pastures and Instagram is White Oak Pastures is, is, is it. All right. Any any other things you want to make sure I get in the show notes? <clears throat> I, I can't think of them. I think you did a good job. All right. I don't have. We did a, we covered a lot of stuff. Well, I uh, I appreciate your time this morning, Will, and um, I really thank you for your time. I enjoyed it, Ron. Good to meet you. I enjoyed it, too. And, uh, Hopefully we'll get get to see you one of these days at uh, at one of your rare conference appearances. Come 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 to Washington. Let me show you what we do. I might have to get out there. You know, I've heard that it rains in Georgia. Is that true? We do get rain. Get about fifty about fifty two inches a year. I haven't year. had fifty two inches in four years. And then uh, the good news is, for the most part. It comes fairly evenly through the year. We don't have monsoon and dry season. Uh, some months are drier than others, and sometimes it's further, they're further apart than I want But it's, uh, you know, because we've got a very sandy soil, it doesn't hold water very well. So we, we, we damn well better get a lot of rain. We've had less than two inches for the entire month of March, and it's been it's probably less than an inch and a half for March. 
and it's been over 180 days since we had a rain of more than three quarters of an inch. I wouldn't know how. I wouldn't know how to do it. That's in Nebraska, you say? South Central Kansas. I'm about I'm about 20 miles from Oklahoma. I need to I need to go, but I enjoy being on the ship. All right, Will, I appreciate it. And uh, those of you out there on podcast land, have a great week. Let me know when you put this on. I will. We'll do, sir.